Welcome to Safety Spectrum, your environmental health and safety connection. This program is a presentation of the Michigan Safety Conference. For almost a century, the annual conference has provided credible educational opportunities and valuable support to the safety and health practitioner by offering 120 instructional programs, along with exhibits highlighting the latest in safety equipment, instrumentation, and demonstrations. To learn more about the conference, please find us at MISH, M-I-C-H, safetyconference.org. Welcome to Safety Spectrum. I'm your host, Sheila Eid. This program is sponsored by the Michigan Safety Conference, and our topic today is what we need to know about lithium-ion batteries. You know, as we hurdle headlong into green technologies, one of the more challenging issues is the care and feeding of lithium-ion batteries. Our guest today will discuss the hazards and safe use of this technology. My guest, Michael Snyder, serves as Vice President, Operational Risk Management for DECRA Process Safety, Advisors in Chemical Process Safety Testing and Consulting Services. Mike was previously the Global Director of Safety and Loss Prevention for Dow Corning and responsible for leading the company's occupational process safety programs. He's also a proud retired fire chief and fire marshal. Mike currently serves on the Center for Chemical Process Safety Governance Board and is a former member of the NFPA Standards Council. He currently serves as a technical member of several NFPA code committees. Mike holds a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Cornell and a master's in occupational safety and health. He's also a registered professional engineer in Michigan, as well as a certified safety professional and certified fire protection specialist. Thank you for joining me today, Mike. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Well, first, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you do at DECRA? So I help clients prevent catastrophic incidents from happening. And so when you when you look at that, it's a basic HSE risk management process. I help clients take a look at their exposure and hazard to large process safety events. We identify what those risks would be and then try to make sure that there's adequate defenses in depth that are properly managed. And then we help find ways to govern and look at that. And so I spend a lot of time, obviously, with things like combustible dust, flammable liquids, reactive chemistry, which is kind of why I've gotten very interested in the lithium-ion battery hazard set. Absolutely. So what role do lithium-ion batteries play in the transition to a net carbon zero economy? So... As we transform to a, a net carbon zero energy world, we're going to be making substantial and significant changes to the way in which we produce and balance that with the consumption of energy. If you think about today, um, when there's demand, many of our fossil fuel plants have the ability to ramp up uh, and meet that demand, other than, say, on very peak days uh, in the summer. Um, obviously, when you go now to a world of renewables and other non, I would call them large power plant environments, we're going to have to find a way that we balance demand and, demand and generation. And we do that by providing storage. Now, this concept of storage is not new. If you think about Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls uh, in the evening, they're basically putting a lot of water on the upside of Niagara Falls and diverting it. And then during peak days uh, of generation, they let it loose to, so that it can go through the turbine. So this has been around this concept for 100 years. But what is different today is that we're going to have to rely upon this much more significantly in our energy infrastructure. And so technology like lithium-ion batteries becomes very, very important as a storage vehicle because it gives you a large amount of energy density 
for a small footprint. And so that becomes pivotal in the way that we're going to basically make sure that we don't short people uh, on high demand days uh, when, when electricity is needed and potentially some of the renewables are not producing at their maximum capacity. To back you up a little bit, do you think hydroelectric is going to go away? The first utility I worked at, they did actually have a dam and a hydroelectric setup, but I think they've converted everything to gas now. But uh... Right. So hydroelectric is, you know, it is a very important source of uh, of power, of, of energy. Um, obviously, it has its own risks, right, because you have large volumes of water that are being held behind dams. And so there's a huge asset integrity and a preventative maintenance issue. I mean, think of the, the Midland uh, and Sanford and Edenville dam experiences we had just a couple of years ago. Uh, but if properly managed uh, with, with good asset integrity programs, they can be very successful. And then obviously, we have to balance that with some of the other ecological issues when you dam up a river and some of the uh, environmental issues that are there. But obviously, it is a, you know, more or less a carbon neutral way to generate uh, energy also. Absolutely. Now, uh, how does a lithium battery work? And they've been around for quite a while, more than I thought, longer than I thought, actually. Right. So the lithium ion battery became commercially available in the 1990s. And, you know, its success, and I'll mention this several times, right, its success is based on the fact that there's a lot of energy in a very small footprint. And therein lies the hazard. There's a lot of energy in a small footprint. And if something goes wrong, um, you release that energy very quickly. And we'll, we'll explore that a little bit more when we talk about thermal runaway. Um, I promise that I will not go too deep into, into the bushes, but there's a few things that we, I think, need to just baseline ourselves on relative to lithium-ion battery nomenclature. And so the first one that I, I want to just mention is lithium-ion batteries are what are known as a secondary cell. And that sounds very scientific. It simply means that it's a rechargeable device. So lithium-ion batteries can be recharged, the typical battery cell, about 2,000 times. And so the lifetime of, of a lithium-ion battery is going to be, you know, if you charge it every day, right, it's, you know, at 365 days a year, it's really not going to, you know, be seven years, and you will basically get to the end of life of that lithium ion cell. Despite the word lithium being in lithium ion, there is no free lithium in the lithium ion battery. And so many people think, geez, I have a fire, I would treat this like it was a combustible metal, and I would use a class D fire extinguishing agent as if it were a metal. And that is also not correct. It is a lithium ion. And so the major hazard that we're gonna really talk about is that there is a combustible or flammable liquid in the electrolyte, and that will be the principal hazard of the fire that we need to deal with. And again, we'll talk about that in just a minute. One other part that's very important about lithium ion batteries and their hazard is what's called state of charge. So a battery, uh, any battery, but a lithium ion battery in particular, has a certain capacity of energy that it can store. When it is at its full capacity, it's at about 100% state of charge. And what we find in our laboratory testing is when you take the state of charge below 30%, uh, the battery has, it, it's very difficult for it to run away. Call it a safe state. So one thing that we'll talk about is that at the state of charge, so like if you're storing these batteries in a warehouse or something like that, we typically try to get them at or below 30% state of charge because they're a less hazardous object. The battery itself, I'll talk about four components in the battery that are important. The cathode, 
which is the device that accepts the electrons. It is kind of the positive terminal of the battery. It is typically made of a lithium metal oxide. Um, and so that's kind of one end of the battery. The second end of the battery is the anode. Um, and that generally is made of graphite. And that is the one that discharges the electrons when we are charging up our, or using it uh, to discharge power to our devices. Between those two is a polymeric separator that's permeable to the lithium ions because the battery has to kind of, when you take electrons out, the ions have to shift uh, from uh, basically from the anode to the cathode. Um, and so that allows the lithium ions to move, but the separator also keeps the, um, the anode and the cathode separate because if you didn't, you would end up having a short circuit, which can become a problem. And that'll actually be part of how thermal runaway uh, occurs. And then the last object that's important to our conversation is the electrolyte. And that basically is the liquid substance that allows the lithium ions to migrate from one side of the battery to the other. Um, and and what, what that today is, is it's a, a lithium fluorine salt that's dissolved in an organic carbonate. Now, two reasons I just mentioned that, we're not gonna go again too deep into the chemistry, but the fluorine means that if this battery catches on fire, you're gonna liberate material that contains fluorine, which normally comes off as hydrogen fluoride or hydrofluoric acid. And so the smoke from a lithium ion battery fire has the toxic properties of hydrogen fluoride exposure. And we need to be very sensitive to that. The other part is that the organic carbonate that is in this electrolyte in some battery models is actually a flammable liquid in others it's a combustible liquid but needless to say it can burn and so that is one other area that as we heat up the battery say during a fault condition that electrolyte really becomes the fuel for the fire a couple of other quick things that i'll mention is that um, the physical form of a lithium-ion battery takes the form of a either a cylindrical uh, unit or cell. It looks like a AA battery is the typical and very common one. There are also prismatic and pouch designs, which are much more incorporated into our consumer electronics like cell phones and laptops. And a typical lithium ion battery has between, depending on the chemistry, three and a half and four volts. And so as you can imagine, as we look for vehicles or battery energy storage systems, we need much higher voltage and a lot of energy uh, and, and power density. And so the way that we do that is we put these cells together in either modules or packs, they're kind of units of cells, where we put them and wire them together in series in parallel to get the amperage and to get the voltage that we're looking for in design. So when you look, for example, at an EV, um, a lithium ion powered uh, electric vehicle, that vehicle has thousands of individual cells in many cases that are like AA batteries inside the battery modules and the battery packs. So that's kind of a, just a, a little bit of a landscape. We'll point back to that terminology as we have our discussion here today. But those are the kind of the key things that I think if we level set, uh, everybody will be, I think, better for that knowledge. So when you bring it down to basics, uh, everybody keeps their laptops, their phones probably charged up 100% as much as they can. Of course, they're not really, you mentioned 30% is a good for storage, but right. I mean, you don't hear of phones actually, you know, setting on fire, blowing up, but these scooters and things like that, they seem to spontaneously combust or something. But then, you know, we always said that when you're driving a, a gasoline powered uh, vehicle, you're sitting on a bomb, essentially. 
So now we've created a different kind of bomb, I guess. Right. So, so I think you have to look at this through the lens of the way that we do risk evaluations in our environmental health and safety arena, right? And again, if we compare internal combustion engines with lithium-ion batteries, right, they have hazards. They're different. Um, and the probability of either one of those creating significant events are very low, right? And so that's kind of where the risk really becomes, in general, tolerable. And at times we add extra layers of protection or controls that are there, that, that are in there. Um, you know, I always kind of preface this type of conversation with, with uh, folks and saying that we're not surprised if somebody is involved in an auto accident with an internal combustion engine and the car catches on fire. It's rare, but we've kind of understood that over the last hundred years of the evolution of automotive uh, technology. And so it would not generally be newsworthy on a nationwide basis. It might be covered in the local news. Lithium ion batteries are new. Their failure rates are also extremely low. They present some unique challenges, uh, both in the exposure and in the emergency response. We'll talk about those. But the failure rates are extremely low. And there are things that we can do to predict when those are going to happen and things that we can do to control and reduce the probability of those. Um, I would just say that um, you know we do know of a number of situations with laptops and with cell phones where those batteries have gone into thermal runaway and started on fire. And so, you know, this has really kind of caused some havoc in the airlines uh, because, right, you're up, uh, say, you're up flying in the air and somebody has a cell phone um, and it goes into thermal runaway. You're kind of limited with what you can do. And uh, there are some techniques and equipment that are now carried on almost all uh, U.S. bound uh, or U.S. Uh, destined uh, flights where they can essentially put it in a bag that has some uh, recycled glass components, pour water in it, and essentially try to quench uh, the, the the runaway reaction. I'll just say two other things is, again, I get to spend a lot of time on airplanes. And number one, uh, obviously, every time you check a bag, they always ask about lithium ion batteries in the baggage. Um, and the reason that that's really important, and you know, it's kind of like the honor system, is if something damages that battery while you're in the, in the luggage hold, uh, from thermal runaway to fire is an order of minutes. And so obviously, the fire in a luggage hold is a very dangerous thing for the safety of all passengers. And so that's why uh, it's extremely important uh, that we're all kind of on the true honor system, but that we, we comply with that. Bring the lithium ion batteries in your baggage that you bring into the aircraft so that if something is going to miss, you get some of the early warning signs that, that that's occurring. The other one is that the messaging in airlines. Uh, today, if you drop your cell phone into your seat, uh, there's a lot of conversation about don't try to kind of force it out, ask for assistance. And that's, again, we don't want to damage the battery or physically uh, cause some damage because that's an abuse mechanism that can cause thermal runaway. And okay, so that, that, that messaging... That yeah, we've used that term a couple of times, a, a thermal runaway. Mm -hmm. We probably need to describe what that is. Plus, you've all, already killed by wanting to fly in a plane. So. Uh, well, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's just like, um, you know, you would not take fireworks in your check baggage, right, or other hazardous materials. This is just one where we have to become more sensitive to this increasing technology. So, again, it's a hazard that can be properly managed, uh, but it takes some discipline uh, from, from all of us. So... Uh, well, let's talk about thermal runaway. So lithium-ion batteries, because they have so much energy density, and they're in a system, right, that has uh, essentially an organic solvent uh, that serves as the electrolyte, 
if you have a, and I use the word abuse mechanism, but if you have a situation that creates a short circuit in the battery, and we'll talk about a couple of scenarios of how that, that occurs, you will start to generate heat in the battery that will build pressure, and that pressure will start to vent out either intentional events or if it overpressures and rips a pouch, where you will be venting flammable gas and you'll be venting hydrogen fluoride that we talked about. And that will easily ignite because you're basically vaporizing. You have some hydrogen, carbon monoxide, and then vaporized electrolyte. Um, and so that will cause a, a, basically a jet fire. Uh, and that will occur right until the energy in the battery is completely dissipated so that's an additional challenge that lithium-ion batteries pack a lot of power so when these thermal runaways occur and progress to fire um it sometimes can last you know minutes or even an hour or so depending on the number of battery cells involved um and that's just a much longer fire than say what we're accustomed to with i'll, I'll call them normal vehicles or scooters or other things uh before the lithium-ion battery became so prevalent so what emergency procedures can be used to respond to a lithium fire, I suppose, depending on what it is, whether it's a car, an EV or something smaller? Right. So let's back up just just a hair here. Um, so the best emergency procedure is the one that's preventive. Right. And, and again, very, very basic uh, environmental health and safety concept. So what we really try to do is there are three abuse mechanisms that I talked about. There's physical abuse. And that's, for example, if like a, a nail or some other type of device actually penetrates the battery, and basically that connects anodes and cathodes, it starts a, a, a basically a short circuit and it'll initiate a thermal runaway. You can also damage the separator by dropping a battery. Um, and so obviously those are two things that we need to just be very sensitive in the workplace when we're transitioning, transporting, and moving batteries. Uh, the second thing is that uh, it would be uh, electrical abuse by overcharging or undercharging um, and over-discharging uh, the battery. And the way that we generally control that is we use what are called battery management systems. With large systems, they're fairly sophisticated computer-controlled systems that uh, that govern the charging and discharging of the battery. In smaller consumer products, they're built into the, what we would call the charger. And then the third one is thermal abuse. And that the typical path that we're concerned about there is if something other than the battery, say it catches on fire, ordinary combustibles in where, we, um, where we're storing or handling the battery and exposes the battery, it can also start uh, some uh, aberrations in the battery that'll lead to thermal runaway. So when we look at evaluating the hazards, we look at those, those three things. And then before we flip to emergency response, the batteries themselves, we have to kind of envision, you know, lithium-ion batteries go from very small in the consumer product uh, arena, where, you know, uh, as we start talking about emergency response, it's easier to kind of carry and move those because they're small. They can fit in the palm of your hand or in a gloved hand. Then we move to um, motive forces, so the electrical vehicle platforms, and that's everything from scooters to e-bikes up to full-size cars and trucks. And then we have very large systems that are part of really the um, the battery energy storage environment, right, that we talked about kind of on the utility generation scale um, that are at the gigawatt hour level of uh, of storage, right, where they're able to power a neighborhood or network for a number of hours that are there. And obviously, the larger you get, 
the more layers of protection you need to put in place, the more controls you need to put in place. Uh, and we do have some standards and guidance that that is there because your ability to kind of, you know, respond and move that device is very limited. So you have to really kind of uh, fight that problem or address that problem in situ. So if the car's on fire, you may just have to let it burn. Right. So, um, you know, the, the, the way that we really kind of look at this is, um, number one, if it possible, right, and can be done safely, if you can move a damaged battery, lithium-ion battery, outside of a structure before the event happens, move it outside. And so, you know, in, in the standpoint here, again, the best response is prevention. However, once the battery starts to overheat or go into a fire scenario, you're, you're right. We're going to have to find ways to, you know, immediately cool or quench it, right? And that could be like with a small consumer electronic product, as, as much as this probably uh, makes people uncomfortable, put it in a pot of water, right? Water is the number one way in which you're going to control the exposure of the heat and if it's a small enough product to actually kind of dissipate that heat and actually bring the the i'll call it the thermal runaway under control but you basically electric or hydrolyze uh the energy that's there uh, and generate a little bit of off gassing when you think about things like cars or battery energy storage systems it's trying to keep that fire or keep that runaway limit it to maybe the object of origin and protect the exposures um, there's a lot of information out there. Um, much of it is not peer-reviewed. That is proposing lots of what I would call um, water additives and other things. Um, they have limited effectiveness. Uh, the things that work, water, and then barriers like you know fire blankets that would allow you to kind of keep that fire exposure from one to the other. Uh, at the, at the Michigan Safety Conference this year, I gave a presentation on this, and there's a lot of different references to what I would call legitimate peer-reviewed emergency response technology, and then things that uh, I just encourage people to be um, cautious consumers about some of the water additives and other things. Many of them have not been gone through the scientific rigor of peer review. Um, with battery energy storage systems, we tend to want to have good ventilation uh, so that we can take any fire off gases that are evolving during a thermal runaway. Um, and then we, there's sprinkler or other fire protection systems that try to kind of keep the fire to the rack, <coughs> excuse me, of origin and prevent it from propagating outside. But you're really in that case, right, when you have these battery energy storage systems, there are a number of modules. Uh, think of them as like overseas containers in a yard. You're trying to keep the fire limit it to the first one that occurs. Um, and from the fire service perspective, these are events that can last hours or days wow. until the situation is brought under control. The last thing I'll mention about um, the emergency response piece of this is there's a factor called stranded energy. And that is, right, these, these lithium-ion battery systems, these modules and packs, which have hundreds or thousands of cells in them, will have cells that have energy in them. And so there have to be ways in which you remove the energy. So if the, if the unit is not highly damaged, you can work on discharging the battery, right? And then being able to safely remove it. If not, uh, there will be emergency response or technician personnel who have to actually disassemble the module and basically then try to take it apart cell by cell. Um, and, and again, in each of these situations, we're going to need fire water, we're going to have to have safety standby personnel, and so oftentimes these events can last 
you know, a day or more until they're brought safely under control. Um, it was just uh, listening to a, a, a podcast by Michael Bryan in the Brighton uh, Fire District uh, on the International Association of Fire Chiefs web channel. And he was talking about the fact that, you know, we need to plan minimally two to three hours for an EV fire scene, where with a typical internal combustion, you know, an hour on scene time uh, is, is one that would be considered a long time just for the vehicle fire. And in some cases, if the vehicle reignites, we might be there four or five hours. And so it becomes kind of a resource and planning issue that we need to be very, very sensitive to. So a lot of different components, none of them are insurmountable. They present new hazards and new challenges, but they're ones that if we go into this with our eyes open, um, and again, we continue to learn from the experiences we have, these can be managed. Um, but they do, like I said, right now in the lithium-ion battery world, we have some challenges in technology that we really haven't seen at this volume. And we're going to see a lot more of it as part of this energy policy uh, to get to kind of net carbon neutral by 2050. Well, if I'm understanding you correctly, it kind of, in some cases, it creates its own energy, which keeps the thermal reaction happening. And that traditional methods aren't always going to work, except maybe using water to cool down other combustibles, but somehow Correct. it's going to have to discharge itself. So Correct. Like until, until you, right. Until you consume the energy, right? Which again, when you have these, these, uh, failure modes that kind of look like uh, basically short circuits until the energy is gone. That short circuit will continue to generate energy and thermal energy uh, that will keep the fire going. So you might think the fire is out, you move the battery, say like on a tow truck and all of a sudden put it in a tow yard and the fire reemerges. That's a very common problem. And so we have to, you know, you have to think and pre-plan, right? I don't want to put those damaged EV vehicles inside a building, right? I want to put them in a designated area in a tow yard. Didn't you mention something when we were talking before about ventilation isn't always the way to go, like in normal fires? Right. So thanks for reminding me. So one of the benefits of a lithium-ion battery is under normal circumstances, and again, normal circumstances are almost all the times that a lithium-ion battery is being used. A lithium-ion battery does not vent any flammable gas under normal use. And then compare this to a lead-acid battery. So like if you have a lead-acid battery uh truck charging station or a battery energy storage system that you're using anytime by normal chemistry you charge a lead acid battery it evolves hydrogen and we just need to be sensitive that we're ventilating the hydrogen from the room and if it's a large enough quantity you put a gas detector in the lithium-ion batteries only evolve these gases right and again carbon monoxide hydrogen and then the toxic gas hydrogen fluoride when they go excuse me into thermal runaway and we need to just be sensitive to that so that if we have a large battery energy storage system, it's important to make sure that we have good ventilation in that area. Um, as we envision, right, more and more homes getting, say, lithium-ion battery, battery backup systems instead of internal combustion generators, uh, we have to be sensitive that, uh, you know, a typical garage does not have ventilation. And a typical garage in Michigan has a refrigerator, sometimes a water heater, and all <laughs> kinds of other things that are ignition sources. And so the scenario of a thermal runaway in a garage, say, venting hydrogen and carbon monoxide, is we could have a room explosion hazard. So those will be things that as these evolve, we'll have to make sure are part of the building and the fire codes because we have seen, and again, in very limited cases where thermal runaway will fill a room with these flammable gases, find an ignition source, and you end up having a room explosion. 
with these larger systems like battery energy storage systems, our model codes and standards represented by like NFPA 855, the battery energy storage system standard requires ventilation and it also requires various detection systems. So not only do you understand when you're starting to see those gases, but you're ventilating them. So any responders who will come will generally not get a large accumulation of those gases, which then when you would open the container to respond would represent an explosion hazard for the responders. So are, some, are there some other research advancements underway to, to improve the uh, safety of these batteries? Correct. So, you know, I, I kind of look at things that are continue to evolve the, the lithium-ion platform today and then what I would call the Buck Rogers vision of the future. So let's talk about, um, you know, what, what's in place today to improve the safety of our, of our batteries. The two things that really predict the ferocity and the probability of thermal runaway are the material of construction in which the battery cathode is made coming back to that nomenclature, which again, typically are uh, kind of a lithium metal oxide uh, material. Um, what we find is that there are advancements. Uh, you'll see a lot of advertisements today about lithium iron phosphate or LFP cathodes. Um, and they are very much more difficult to uh, make the battery run away. So that's a good thing from safety. However, the energy storage density is significantly compromised. It's reduced by that. And so there are commercial implications with that. Uh, and if you think about that, right, if the battery energy storage density say drops by 33%, that means on a car, I have to add 33% more batteries and weight. So that is kind of a continuing evolution. And there are more activities underway to look for new cathode materials that might not compromise the energy density, but be safer. But for example, if you were not that sensitive to weight and footprint, lithium iron phosphate is a very, very good anode to reduce the probability of these events from occurring. On the other side, we mentioned that the electrolyte today is a flammable or low flashpoint combustible liquid. And, and again, right in reflection, you would say that's not an inherently safer approach. And so there's a lot of work right now going into improving the flammability performance. So in other words, raising flashpoint or making materials that would be inherently be non-flammable uh, to deal with that. And again, that would be if you did get into thermal runaway, you would have much less of a flammable loading uh, that would be involved. So that's kind of, um, I would call some of the modern advancements that are going on here. Obviously, there continue to be work going on on water additives for uh, fire protection and suppression activities. And again, I would just caution everybody, look to make sure that there's scientific evidence uh, before we celebrate that we have a new magic additive uh, that'll work here. Um, th there, there are a few that sh are showing some promise um, in this area, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure that we have found any magic additive that we, we, we would declare that uh, one today. As we look at batteries, um, you know, I'll call it the, you know, the next major step forward here, um, it would be going to like solid state technology so that, you know, basically the electrolyte becomes more of a solid state system as opposed to a liquid system. And there's lots of preliminary research, but, you know, I think realistically we're maybe 10 years out before that's going to be really a plausible replacement for the platform that's here today, particularly uh, with all of this uh, other activity that's going on and just trying to get EVs and other systems in place. Because again, today there are very small, we're, we're, we're having these concerns and challenges while this is still a very small percentage of our energy storage infrastructure. And it's gonna be rapidly increasing uh, in the next 10 years.
So uh, we've talked about some of them, but what are some of the critical safety practices that EHS professionals should follow to reduce the risk? Right. So, you know, so I think, first of all, there's there's both the home and the work environment. And and the home one is we have to, as EHS professionals, we have to role model good behavior. And so, you know, the predictors, uh, particularly about things in consumer electronics and let's say uh, small EVs like hoverboards and, and e-scooters, we know that the battery management system and the charger paired and matched to the battery are absolutely critical to prevent thermal runaway. They're a matched set and they're tested in that way. And then the battery that you get uh, with these devices has passed all these tests and is certified for use in the United States. Now, if you damage the battery or lose the battery or lose the charger, right, we're all tempted to go to Amazon or to the, you know, the, the aftermarket and find the low cost battery or the low cost charger. And it may or may not, it may plug in, but it may not have all the safety features or emergency shutdowns and interlocks that, that would be there. And that's a danger. And so many of these problems that we have with consumer electronics are when there's a mismatch between the battery and the charger, right, because of some aftermarket uh, considerations. The second part that I would mention, again, in role modeling good behavior is, right, we talked about the fact that lithium-ion batteries, let's just say they're good for 2,000 charges. Once they get to end of life, we have to be very, very sensitive that they just don't enter the trash stream. Number one, we want to recycle uh, the very valuable and rare materials that are used to make them, lithium and manganese and cobalt uh, in particular. But more importantly, we don't want that energy source with, say it has a little bit of energy left, going into waste sorting, waste handling and disposal because they will generate very nasty fires. And that's a problem that's arising right now. There are, they're very limited today, but if you keep attention in your local news, there are as part of household hazardous waste collections, lithium ion battery collections and it's you know please keep them on hand and use an authorized uh, disposition source uh, so that they can be treated and recycled appropriately uh, and not just enter the trash stream as as these you know become more prolific uh, i'm sure we will have more authorized recycle streams established but that's a second risk and those two things in particular i think we as professionals can role model in the work environment it's really taking a look at those three abuse cycles that I talked about and identify where they can come into play in your workplace, um, making sure that employees are aware. And let's take an example, a dropped battery. It can be very easy for somebody to drop a lithium ion battery and figure oh, there's no need to report it. There's no need to do anything. And yet that's a huge predictor of where a battery is going to subject to be subject to thermal runaway. Report it and get that battery into a storage vessel outside of the building until it can be thoroughly analyzed by a professional in this area. But we have to get our employees, our team members comfortable with reporting that, even if something doesn't happen right now. But if you look again at mechanical abuse, electrical abuse and thermal abuse and look at where those can manifest themselves overlay that with that state of charge that i talked about we can identify where the high risk situations are and then make sure that we have adequate protections again the adequate protections in the lithium-ion batteries as say they're in your manufacturing area or utilization area is going to be automatic sprinklers to try to limit, first of all, any combustibles that would expose the batteries but with heat, but also to limit the growth of the fire uh, of any lithium-ion batteries that are um, that are on fire or going through thermal runaway. That's interesting what you said about dropping a battery and feeling comfortable. It's like the old 
old time abrasive wheels, you know, always testing them. And if you drop them, don't just put them back on the rack. But uh, with batteries, right. they seem to be awfully sensitive. Why do you think this topic is really important right now? So, number one, I think, you know, we have to be risk managed and risk balanced in our approach, right? There's a there's a new hazard. There are some very unique challenges that are out there, and I don't want to discount them, but we also have to kind of look at probability predictors and controls, right? So I think we can we can enter this conversation in a in a mature way um, and make sure that we are helping to advance the understanding of what causes the thermal runaway and what we can and cannot do, right? This is not to say there aren't problems and challenges that are facing us. We are at the early stage of a, really a massive transformation in the way that uh, energy is going to be delivered and consumed. Uh, the next part of this is going to be hydrogen, um, and hydrogen is going to bring a whole new set of hazards, uh, inflammability and reactivity that we're going to need to be prepared for, and we're going to have to have similar conversations. The, can, the I'll say the, the pro or the plus of hydrogen is we've been using hydrogen in industry for 100 years, so we know a lot about hydrogen, but as it gets more into the consumer streams, we're going to have to get people much more aware. One of the key things with hydrogen is it's virtually flammable in any release scenario. It has a very low, lower flammable limit, a very high upper flammable limit. So, you know, again, um, if you have a release or you're, you're fueling, <laughs> you're going to almost always have a flammable environment and the ignition energy is low. So we have to become knowledgeable environmental health and safety professionals for the new energy environment and make sure that we can have these. And again, I'm not saying sophisticated, but I think risk aware conversations with our colleagues, with our managers, and really with our other stakeholders. And um, again, I think be hungry for information that is vetted and peer reviewed, right? Uh, we need to be careful, right? There's a lot of information on the internet. We have to be skeptical consumers of that. But again, you know, Programs like the Michigan Safety Conference and other uh, vetted uh, types of informational sources, I think, help us become better professionals in this area. You know, that's always been a challenge for the EHS person is that technology always outstrips the safety. Right. <laughs> and the well, are discovered, unfortunately, by accident sometimes. Right. And, and you know, I think it's going to challenge us in the code and regulatory community. Uh, oh, yeah. We we used to think that three-year cycles to update codes were fast. Um, and in this case, right, the life cycle changes of these are, you know, almost annually. And so how, how do we, how do we really put that into place? And, you know, again, battery technology and the use of lithium ion batteries, the building and fire codes are going to have a lot of new information in them in the 2024 edition of the International Fire and Building Code, which are generally adopted throughout Michigan. But many of them still require a risk analysis because some of these things are still not articulated in a prescriptive way. So the only way you're going to do a risk analysis is to be informed in what are the components, what are the exposure factors, what are your controls, and how do they overlay? So, you know, again, I, I look at it, it's a challenge, but I think this is kind of a, an exciting area for environmental health and safety professionals who want to try to expand their knowledge in their area with this, you know, new, I'll call it green energy economy. Uh, there are lots of new opportunities for us to expand our knowledge base. Okay. And I'm going to switch gears to, at the end here, a, a fun fact that you want to share with us. And I know you do. Okay. So, um, what's your other I, love? <laughs> yeah. So it, it, sometimes my work and play are somewhat intermixed, but, uh, in the last seven or eight years, I've become involved 
uh, with a, a firefighting museum in Bay City, Michigan, that's called the Antique Toy and Firehouse Museum. And it has a collection. It's it's a hidden gem. Uh, and so I take any opportunity to just give a quick promotion for it. There are 60 historic fire engines, about 14,000 fire toys, and lots of fire history and relics from the central Michigan area or mid-Michigan area. Um, toyandfirehousemuseum.org is the website that has our collection there. We're open every weekend. Uh, it's worth the trip. Uh, and you end up, if you come and take your family for a tour, you get an antique fire engine ride at the end. So oh, okay. it's That's kind of a, a good experience uh, in, again, located in Bay City. Uh, with lots of neat things. Nobody leaves without a smile on their face. So I've it. really enjoyed be, being involved with that group. Okay. Well, my final thoughts, the utilization of such powerful batteries is only going to increase considering their advantages, understanding the hazards and following safe practices in the workplace, on the roads or in our homes is absolutely essential for assuring their safe use. So I'd like to thank uh, Michael Snyder of DECRA Process Safety. If you have any comments or we'd like links to some of uh, Michael's very good articles on the topic. He can be reached at mikesnyder at decra.com. And if you have any questions about the podcast, the Michigan Safety Conference, or if you'd like to be a guest on Safety Spectrum or sponsor one of the podcasts, information can be found on our website at mich.safetyconference.org. Thank you for listening to Safety Spectrum. This is Sheila Ide.